This is Josh from the Radical Team covering for Stacy Martin. How should belief in heaven come to affect the way you live on earth this week? In this message on Mark 12, 18 through 27, Pastor David Platt asks us to reflect upon this point in question. He reminds us that God will make all things new at the end of time. The earthly pleasures we enjoy for a time are mere shadows of heavenly pleasures we'll enjoy forever. As Christians, we can rejoice in suffering because the indescribable sorrow in this world will one day turn into inexpressible joy. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message titled, How Belief in the Next World Changes Life in This One. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, I want to invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 12. As you're turning, I do want to welcome those of you in other locations around Metro DC, and those of you physically unable to be with us who are online, it's good to be together around God's Word. But today is Mother's Day, and I put on my Sunday best today. I feel like I'm choking as I speak. I'm convinced ties are a product of the fall. Um, I don't think they'll be in the new heaven and the new earth, but they're here now. And uh, I want to honor my mom and other moms, including both physical and spiritual mothers and grandmothers all across this gathering and all these locations where we are, and we were just praying, and I was in tears as I was listening to us pray, just knowing this day carries all kinds of emotions, even in my own life and family. So I am deeply grateful, overwhelmed, really. Today, when I think about God's grace in my mom, who I talked to earlier this morning, there's no question, I would not be who I am without my mom's selfless and sincerely Christ-like love for me. At the same time, I'm saddened when I think about Heather's mom, who died suddenly years ago. And at the same time, I am grateful for my wife, who's the valiant mother of our six kids. And I won't, but I could spend the entire sermon telling you about how great a mom she is. And at the same time, I can remember when we walked through years of infertility before we first adopted. And for those years, there were Mother's Days when we didn't want to be in church because of the reminder it was of what we longed for, but what God was not providing, at least according to our plans and our timeline. And I know some in our church family are are walking that road right now. And while I am so thankful for adoption in so many ways, so thankful, I was thanking God this morning for our children's birth moms, including one whom we know, but for some of our kids and for some of you, there's a void in not knowing much, if anything, about your birth mom, or maybe not having ongoing relationship with her. And all these are emotions that just I personally experience. I've not even mentioned mothers who've lost children, especially over the last year, or single moms who are doing so much on your own, or single sisters in our church family who may desire marriage or motherhood, and God has not, or at least not yet, fulfilled those desires. 
or for some of you whose relationship with your mom is strained for any number of reasons. So all this to say, there are a variety of emotions we bring into this day, which leads to the, one of the many things I love about our God and why I'm so glad you're with the church on this Mother Day, Mother's Day, regardless of what emotions you're carrying, because God invites you to bring all of those emotions to him. We read it in the Psalms this last week, Psalm 55, verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. You are not intended to carry your emotions on your own, keep them to yourself. Cast them, bring them to God in worship. Where there is gratitude in your heart, give thanks to God. Where there's hurt in your heart, ask for healing from God. Cast all your thoughts, emotions, questions, longings on the Lord, and he will personally hold you up. And he's about to do that right now for all of us through his word. Though I need to confess, when I first realized that this next step in our journey through the book of Mark landed on Mother's Day, I got a little concerned. So we're going to read it in a moment, but just to give you an overview, this is a conversation between a group of people and Jesus about a woman who sees seven of her husbands die, and then she dies. And I read that and thought, okay, how is this going to encourage mothers, or any of us for that matter, on Mother's Day? But the more I got into this text, the more I realized this is an awesome word on any day, including Mother's Day. So let me show it to you. Let's hear what God is saying to us right now. Remember the context, or if you haven't been here, maybe you're visiting with us, here's the setup. It's Tuesday, and a variety of different groups are working together to trap and accuse and arrest Jesus, which they'll eventually succeed in doing by Thursday, and by Friday, Jesus will be dead. But on this Tuesday, after the chief priests and scribes and elders questioned Jesus' authority, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, And then the Pharisees and the Herodians tried to trap Jesus in a political question. We looked at that last week. Now a group called the Sadducees comes to him. So quick background on this group. They were opposite the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, basically the Jewish ruling council. They were on the other side of the aisle and actually were opposed to much of the Pharisees' teaching. The Sadducees believed that the most authoritative teaching from God was found in the first five books of the Old Testament called the Law from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And they didn't attribute much authority to any other teachings after that, including, and maybe even especially, all the things that the Pharisees taught. And specifically, the Sadducees didn't believe in things like angels or demons. And important for our text today, they didn't believe in life after death. They just believe that after you die, that's the end of the story. There's no resurrection of the body, no world to come. In all of this, they're a pretty wealthy group, high-class group with a lot of control over temple operations, which is why they were definitely not happy when Jesus started overturning tables in the temple on Monday. So on Tuesday, we pick up in Mark chapter 12, verse 18. The Bible says, and Sadducees came to Jesus who say that there is no resurrection. So that's the emphasis here. You're going to see why Mark points that out. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us 
that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Let me pause and give a little background here. They are referencing the law here. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6 specifically. So the Sadducees believed this, how God had set up a process to provide for widows. Look at Deuteronomy 25. I'll put it on the screen here. Verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And we're not going to dive into this whole passage today, but to summarize what's happening here is God is making a way for a name and family line to carry on in the event of a husband's untimely death. So the Sadducees knew and believed in this law. But remember, they didn't believe in resurrection after death. They thought that idea was preposterous. And they didn't see it taught in the law, these first five books of the Old Testament. So they make up a scenario in their conversation with Jesus to try to illustrate how preposterous the idea of resurrection is. So now we're back to Mark 12, verse 20. Jesus, they said, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. You can picture the Sadducees almost laughing as they pose the question. Do you believe in resurrection after this life? Well, does that mean this woman's going to have seven husbands forever? When marriage is supposed to be between one husband and one wife? Now, this life after death thing is going to be a mess, isn't it, Jesus? Do you really believe this? And in their attempt to ridicule Jesus and the idea of resurrection, Jesus responds in verse 24. He said to them, is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That is quite an indictment for religious leaders. I love this. If I were to summarize how you're wrong, I'd sum it up this way. You don't know the word of God or the power of God. Besides that, you're doing all right. And and there's a whole sermon even right there. Is it possible for you to know God's word but not know God's power? Like you know what his word says, you've read it, you've heard it, you even believe it, but you've not let its power soak into your life and your family the way you live every day? Maybe yours is a head knowledge, but not a heart knowledge? Or do you have all this desire to experience God working in his power, but you're not actually spending time studying, meditating on, and memorizing, knowing God's word? Amen. Or maybe you're missing both, like the Sadducees. You're not studying, meditating on, memorizing God's word, and you don't believe in the power of God in your life, your family, the effect of his word and his power in everyday life. God, right now in his word, is inviting you right where you are sitting to know his word and experience his power in your life. Amen. This is for all of us. 
God is speaking that to us. He wants you to know his word and his power in your life, in your family, all week long. Now, back to the passage. And don't miss the connection with the Sadducees here. Their lack of belief in the resurrection and life after death was evidence they didn't know the word of God or the power of God. So in response to this hypothetical scenario of a woman who loses seven husbands, Jesus says in verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I love that phrase. You are quite wrong. Literally means you are way off base. And here's how they were off base. Here's how they didn't know. Remember, the word of God or the power of God. When it comes to the word of God, Jesus quotes from God's word to Moses through a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, which, by the way, was in the law, the part of God's word that these guys did believe. Jesus says, in the law, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at that point were dead. Yet God still says, I am their God. Which would make no sense if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had ceased to exist, if there was no life after death. If there's no resurrection, that means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were just decomposed corpses turned to dust by that point. It would make no sense for God to say, I am their God. Especially when God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob an everlasting covenant, a relationship with them that would never end. But God is not God of the dead. He is God of the living. Which means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. And God is still their God. Just like he promised to be, his covenant relationship with them was very much alive. Amen. Jesus says, you believe the law, the first five books of the Old Testament? You don't even realize what the law teaches. That for all who trust in God, they will experience eternal life with God. And then Jesus says, here's how you don't know the power of God. Your mind is so small. Your view of God so limited. You have no idea what God has in store after death for all who trust in him. People who've trusted in God when they die are going to experience life like they've never seen or imagined before. That by the power of God will be like angels in heaven. Now, at this point, we need to pause and soak this one in. First, because there could be a lot of misconceptions here, Jesus did not just say that when we die, that we become angels in heaven with wings or whatever else angels have. No, the Bible does not teach that people who trust in Jesus become angels when they die. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus said, in heaven, we as humans made in the image of God in a way that's different from angels with human bodies that will rise from the dead, we will be like angels. 
In what sense? In the sense that they and we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Which then leads to the second reason we need to pause and soak this one in. Because Jesus did say right here that we will not be married in heaven. And for anyone who is happily married here, that might sound like bad news. I've even heard people say, well, if there's no marriage in heaven, then I don't want to go. And I want to show you that that is a very foolish thing to say. And I want to show you that it's good news, actually really good news, that there will not be marriage in heaven. And I say this as an extremely happily married man. Don't miss what Jesus is teaching about life after death for all who trust in him. Remember, that's the main point of contention here with the Sadducees, the issue of resurrection. And marriage, this hypothetical marriage scenario is related to that. So here's what Jesus is teaching about resurrection in heaven. You might write this down. Earthly pleasures we enjoy for a time are mere shadows of heavenly pleasures we'll enjoy forever. Earthly pleasures we enjoy for a time are mere shadows of heavenly pleasures we'll enjoy forever. And this applies to many things, but let's think about marriage in light of the illustration in this passage. Marriage is designed by God to be an earthly pleasure, right? To be close to, committed to one person, for that person to be close to, committed to you, to share love with someone else at a deeper, truer, more beautiful level than any other relationship in this world. All of that equals earthly pleasure, designed by God. Yet, at the same time, Marriage is designed by God to be a picture, right? This is very clear in the Bible that marriage is designed by God, Ephesians chapter 5, to be a picture of the church as the bride of Christ. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. That's marriage. This mystery is profound. I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Husbands are supposed to love their wives in a way that pictures Christ's love for the church. And wives are supposed to love their husbands in a way that pictures the church's love for Christ. Which means marriage is designed by God to point to a much greater reality. Marriage is a shadow of a real thing. And the real thing is the relationship between Jesus and his church as his bride. Which is why heaven is described as a wedding feast. Look at Revelation chapter 19 near the very end of the Bible. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the what? Marriage of the Lamb, that's a reference to Jesus, has come, and his bride has made herself ready. 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you see this? We won't need the picture of marriage between a man and a woman in heaven to point us to Jesus as the one who loves us like a bride because we're going to have the real thing. We're going to be with Jesus as his bride. And we've talked about this before, just to make sure we're clear on this imagery, because I know it may feel odd for men to think, yeah, I'm going to be a bride one day. But picture what that means. To be a bride is to be united forever with someone who loves you, who treasures you, and who takes responsibility for providing for everything you need. And Jesus will be that for us forever. And if you have a hard time with needing to be provided for by Jesus, then that is actually a problem with your pride. The beauty of heaven is that we will be with Jesus. And if that doesn't excite you, then you probably have the wrong idea of heaven. And you may not actually be in relationship with Jesus. Because the whole point of heaven is we're going to be with him. Side note here, a lot of people, even Christians, when they think about heaven, just think about all the stuff we'll have and things we'll enjoy more than we ever had before. But they miss the whole point of heaven. Heaven is not a place where we'll have all the finest things of this world. Heaven is a place where the finest things of this world will not compare with the fact that we are with Jesus. And if, if you love and want your husband or your wife more than you love or want Jesus, then you have made an idol out of your husband or your wife. For that matter, if you love or want anything or anyone in this world more than you love or want Jesus, then you have made an idol out of that thing or that person. If you want Gifts more than you want the giver, that's idolatry. And the whole point of heaven is that we're going to be with the giver, with God. We're going to have the real thing, Jesus, a perfect relationship with him, perfect enjoyment of him. And he is infinitely better than any husband, wife, marriage, anything or anyone in this world put together. Jonathan Edwards put it best. He said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. And the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Earthly pleasures we enjoy for a time are mere shadows of heavenly pleasures we'll enjoy forever. In other words, 
There's so much more than we experience here waiting for us there in our relationship with God and flowing from him our relationships with others. So this doesn't mean we won't enjoy other people, all kinds of other people from our lives here and from across all history. So yes, for those whom God calls to marry in this world, which is obviously not everyone, that marriage relationship is designed by God to be closer than any other relationship in this world. At the same time, every marriage here on earth is still a relationship between two sinful people. Many have experienced this in a marriage that has been broken or no longer exists. And as much as I love my marriage, it's obviously not perfect. And I still have sin in me that affects my wife. She still has sin in her that affects my life. So just imagine that relationship in heaven where there is no sin anymore. And then just imagine not just having that kind of sinless love for one other person and receiving sinless love from one other person. Imagine experiencing sinless, perfect love for and from every single other person around you including your wife or husband, as you'll look back and all, by God's grace, you shared together on earth and you'll enjoy one another like you've never experienced in this world while also experiencing a closeness with every other person who's in Christ that even in marriage on earth you weren't able to experience. Literally, it will be one big, perfectly happy family is anybody else looking forward to the day when there will be no more family drama? And just family joy, perfect joy with our heavenly Father. This is what Jesus is pointing us to. And the Sadducees were missing it. They couldn't imagine it. And some of you, you might be thinking, that just sounds fairy tale like No, this is what the power of God is able to bring about. Don't doubt the word of God or the power of God. I should add one other side note here, because I know some of you are thinking it. And I'll speak generally in light of the ages in our gathering. But what about, you know, that thing that married couples do? Is Jesus saying that won't be in heaven either? Well, think about it. That thing that married couples do leads to children being born and that won't be happening in heaven. Still some think, yeah, but it's also a pleasure, and yes it is, but it's not an essential pleasure for individual human flourishing. If it was, then singles, including Jesus himself, would not be able to flourish. But this is the point. When you think about pleasures in this world, don't let your mind be small like the Sadducees. When God is saying to us in his word, Trust me, I'm the author of all pleasure. And I have provided for you pleasures on this earth, but they are only a shadow of what is to come. Amen. You think that? And then by that, I mean, whatever. 
is pleasure in this world. God is saying, you think that is a pleasure? Just wait until you're in a new heaven and a new earth with no trace of sin or sorrow or suffering, just pure, absolute enjoyment of me and each other and creation. Don't worry that heaven is going to be boring. We're not just going to sit around on clouds and stare at light for a quadrillion years. Like, that is not what God describes heaven as. He's the author of all good gifts, and it's eternity of enjoying God and his good gifts to flow from him. We're going to be in his presence, enjoying him forever. And isn't this forever peace awesome? Because even the greatest pleasures in this world, even the greatest marriage, for example, in this world lasts only for a time. But there, pleasures will last for all time. J.I. Packer wrote, hearts on earth may say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this ever to end, but invariably it does. The hearts of those in heaven say, I want this to go on forever, and it will. There is no better news than this. This is such good news. Earthly pleasures, mere shadows pointing us to greater pleasure to come. Thinking about shadows makes me think of C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. So this is a longer quote, but I think it's worth it. It's a little story time here. Listen to how Lewis describes Narnia in a conversation between Lucy and Edmund and Peter. It's from the last battle. And I'll just go and say it up front. I wish I could do the voices better, but I'm not going to even try. So just, just try to follow along with me. Those hills, said Lucy, The nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. Why, they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with his forked head, and there's the pass into Arkenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them. They look further away than I remembered, and they're more, more, I don't know, More like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory softly. Suddenly, Farsight the eagle spread his wings, soared 30 or 40 feet up in the air, circled around, and then alighted on the ground. Kings and queens, he cried, we have all been blind. We're only beginning to see where we are. From up there, I've seen it all. Edensmuir, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, and Caraparavel. Still shining on the edge of the eastern sea, Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter? For Aslan told us older ones that we should never return to Narnia, and here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said, You could never go back to Narnia? He meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and will always be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or a copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow. 
or a waking life is from a dream. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Do you realize this? One day for all who trust in Jesus, we will come home at last to our real country the country where we belong, the land we've been looking for all our lives. We realize the things that you and I loved most about this world, the earthly pleasures we experienced for a time here, will indeed have been just a shadow, a foretaste of heavenly pleasures we will enjoy forever. Which leads to one other word God is speaking to us in this text. And really, it's another way of saying what we've already seen, but I think it's particularly important in light of the context of this passage in Mark. Did you notice how crass and unfeeling the Sadducees come across? They tell a story about a woman losing seven husbands to try and make a theological point while bypassing all the hurt and pain and heartache that would be involved in that kind of situation. And I'm guessing, I'm particularly sensitive to this because as I was studying this text this week, I heard about an elder in the church I used to pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, the church at Brook Hills, named Jared Keim, who died suddenly on Tuesday night this week. By all accounts, was healthy, active, seems to be just sudden cardiac arrest. And in an instant, he was gone with his wife, Jessica, and their four young kids behind. And then I start to think of other similar stories in our church family. Even quoting C.S. Lewis makes me think of Levon as Lee and Ellen and their kids and grandkids read the Chronicles of Narnia with great voices to each other as Lee prepared for his homegoing this last year. So let's hear this word from God in this text as well. Indescribable sorrow in this world will one day turn into inexpressible joy in the world to come. Sorrow will turn to joy. Think about the Psalms this week, Psalm 56. God sees your sorrow here. He counts the tossings in your bed. He holds your tears in a bottle. And God guarantees you, God guarantees you that one day your mourning will turn to dancing. Your sorrow will turn to joy. 
for, and please hear what I'm about to say, for all who trust in Jesus. He's the one who makes all this possible. And all that we're seeing today is only for those who trust in Jesus. The problem in this world is sin. And not just sin in the world generally, but sin in our lives specifically. We have all sinned against God. And as a result of our sin, we will die. And we all deserve eternal judgment away from God. But the good news of the Bible is that God loves us and God has made a way for us to be forgiven of our sin and restored the relationship with him. John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life. For all who trust in Jesus, who died on a cross for our sin and rose from the dead, For all who trust in him, you know him as God, not of the dead, but of the living. And you will have eternal life with him. You can walk into this week with confidence that even if something suddenly happens to you, that Jesus has taken the worst thing that could happen to you, and he's turned it into the best thing that could happen to you. To live is Christ, and to die will be gain. There is resurrection. There is a real life after death, and everything hinges on whether or not you have trusted in Jesus. I invite you, put your trust in Jesus today. And for all who have, look to Jesus today as the giver of every good gift, especially on this Mother's Day. For All who feel gratitude on this day, give thanks and praise to the God who is the author of it all, who is the giver of your mom, your physical or spiritual mother, your children. And as you think of the many good gifts God has given you through your mom or as a mom or in moms around you, realize all those good gifts are just shadows of so much more to come. And for all who have hurts and heartaches and unmet expectations and unfulfilled longings on this day, honestly express those to God and trust in his power to sustain you. And not just to sustain you, but to satisfy you with himself now and forever. I want to lead us to reflect and pray in light of this closing question, in light of all that God has spoken to us through his word. How should belief in the world to come change the way you live in this world this week? Just spend some time thinking, praying through that question. Even How should belief in the world to come change the way you are thinking and feeling right now? The way you're living right now. So God, show us. In these couple moments, just pausing, show us how belief in the world to come changes our thoughts and our desires, our perspective, our entire way of life right now.
as you continually to pray and reflect, and with your heads bowed, I just, I want to ask that question of you. Just prayed that this morning God would draw people in this room to faith in Jesus. Maybe for the first time or maybe to come back to him for the first time in a long time. If, if that's you, if you need to begin a relationship with Jesus now, to put your trust in him as Savior and Lord of your life, or to return to him, just pray in your heart, God, I want to be restored to relationship with you as the fountain of all that is good, the author and giver of every good gift. And I confess my sin against you. But I believe Jesus died on a cross for my sin. He rose from the grave in victory for me so that through my trust in you now, that God, I could be forgiven of my sin and restored a relationship with you. I, I want that. You pray that before God. He does that. He forgives you of your sin, restores you to a relationship with him, not because of your works, but because of his love for you. Oh, I urge you to put your trust in Jesus in this way. Just like Jared this last week, you're not guaranteed to make it a next Sunday. To tomorrow, for that matter, put your trust in Jesus today. Respond to God's Spirit speaking to you right now. Flowing from that, I, I want to lead us to pray for on two different directions specifically and to pray for each other in these ways. So in just a moment, I'm going to ask moms all around this room to stand and I just want to lead us to pray for you specifically in light of what we've just seen in God's Word. So. If you are a mom in this room, would you stand up where you are? Moms all across this room of all ages. And as you stand, I just want to say to you on behalf of this whole church family, we honor you. Amen. We love you. Oh, come on, that sounds like a little golf clap. Let's, like, really go for it. We praise God for his grace in you. And, uh, well, I'll say what I said to my wife. Like, I have no idea how you do what you do. No clue how you do all that you do. But we praise God for his grace in you, 
that flows from that. And, and even or especially on days when you don't feel like you're doing it well, we are so thankful for his grace towards you in that moment and through you in those moments. We love you. We praise God for you. We want to pray for you. So can I get everybody else to stand up? Let's make sure we got a hand on every shoulder of every mom in this room. And you can pray out loud if you want. I'm going to lift a prayer before God together. You can just, you can pray if you want out loud, or you can just amen what I'm praying. But let's intercede right now for these moms. God, we praise you for every single one of these women. We praise you for your grace in every single one of these moms. For the gift that they are, the picture of your love that they are. And we praise you that just as you have given them children who are fearfully and wonderfully made in your image, this miracle of birth, God, we praise you for that. And, and we pray that they would know they are fearfully and wonderfully made in your image, that they are deeply loved by you, honored by you, oh God. We pray that they would know the height, width, depth, and breadth of your love for them in Jesus, that they would know that in Jesus they are clothed in righteousness, and you have have created them, blessed them, and promised to give them everything they need for this high calling you've entrusted to them. And we pray for all that they need. We pray for their strength and weakness. God, we pray for your strength over them. Uphold them with your righteous right hand. May they wake up in the morning knowing you are there to uphold them. God, would, would you be their peace? Guard them from being anxious about anything. Keep them, deliver them, free them from worry about anything. And in everything, by prayer and petition, let them present their requests to you with thanksgiving. We pray that your peace, which transcends, passes all understanding, would guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We pray for their wisdom. God, amidst all the things, all the different things that are in the air in their lives, that they're juggling, they're working through daily, give them wisdom, we pray. Help them to know. Help them to see what you see. Help them to live for what matters most. And give them everything they need. You're our Father in heaven. You show us how to love children. We pray you'd fill them with your spirit and empower them in supernatural ways for the task you've called them to. And God, on the moments, on the days when they feel like they're falling or failing, God, we pray that you would be the lifter of their heads that they would walk with honor before you, trusting in your grace, and that you would bless their lives for the spread of your goodness and your grace in their children, children's children, and in multitudes of spiritual children, we pray. God, we pray, Psalm 67 of them, be gracious to them, bless them, cause your face to shine upon them that through them your ways may be known on the earth and your saving power known among the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Well, that's it for today's episode. For additional articles, podcast events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.